This is the first of a series of posts on the topic of growth endurance, fast growth, many years in a row. We're accustomed to hearing about startups that have tripled, quadrupled, quintupled, or grown even faster in the early stages. But once you've reached the tens of millions of ARR, it's very hard to grow fast. That's why very few companies have reached $100 million in ARR, and why even fewer continue to double when they're at that scale. Bessemer Venture Partners pointed out in their annual State of the Cloud report a few months ago that while 520 unicorns were minted in 2021, only about 60 new $100 million ARR companies were added. They gave those companies Centaur status. Centaurs are seven times more rare than unicorns. Although centaurs with real growth endurance are rare, the imperative to grow fast is stronger than ever before. Companies have raised money at astronomical valuations, which assume they will continue to grow fast for years to come. But because there are very few companies that have done this successfully, the best practices on growth endurance are hard to find. That's why I launched this new series. In this episode, I sat down with Ariel Cohen, the CEO of TripActions. TripActions was named to the Forbes Cloud 100 list of the world's top private cloud companies several years in a row. They are also rumored to have filed confidentially to go public at a $12 billion valuation. You can listen to the podcast or else read the lightly edited transcript of the conversation. Let's dive in. Ariel, thank you so much for joining the podcast today to talk about this very interesting topic of growth endurance, um, about which I think you've developed a fair bit of expertise. So I'm very excited to chat with you. Yeah, it's fun to be here. And, uh, you know, we've met uh, years ago at a conference and it's really fun to now kind of get to the details and uh, share the story with, with everybody. Definitely. I know lots happened in a good way in your business since then. So I'm excited to dive into that. For folks who don't know, do you want to talk a little bit about what Trip Actions does, sort of nature attributes of your company? Yeah, sure, sure. So it's actually super simple. We make travel easy. So if you are a frequent traveler, road warrior for your business life, your personal life, we are making sure that everything around your travel is super, super easy from booking your trip while you're on the go, expensing the payments around travel, everything that you do around TNE, we cover that. Thank you for sharing that. So I think the readers will know in many cases that growth endurance is basically all about sustaining high growth rates, even as you reach ARR scale. And I think what's become notable the past few years, even as companies have raise money at sky high valuations is actually that there are very few companies that have reached meaningful ARR scale and even fewer companies that have reached that scale and continue to almost double year over year or grow, you know, a 70% plus growth rate. Bessemer Venture Partners talked about this specifically in their recent State of the Cloud report a few months ago. They were talking about how 520 unicorns with a valuation of over a billion dollars were minted in 2021. But there are only about 60 new $100 million ARR companies added in that same year. And so, you know, the, the rarity of these companies meant to them that we should call them something. We should give them a label in the same way that billion-dollar companies in terms of valuation are called unicorns. So they called these $100 million ARR companies centaurs. And centaurs are seven times more rare than unicorns. So kick off in this conversation, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion on why are there comparatively few companies that have achieved that $100 million ARR threshold? First of all, because it's hard, right? But <laughs> I, I, I mean, <laughs> we can talk a little bit about that. 
I think that, you know, the unicorn thing, uh, obviously has market dynamics and part of this is that VCs would invest on the future, right? So if it meets some criteria that we can talk about later, if it meets some criteria, then there is the potential for this company to achieve $100 million ARR. And in fact, you actually need to achieve much more to justify the valuations that you're going to have on your first kind of unicorn kind of round and then the second and the third and fourth and fourth because your valuation hopefully will grow. But as you're going with valuation, you actually... There is this convergence between the expectation and the actual money, the actual revenue, and later, by the way, even uh, unit economics and profits, right? So the entire thing, but there has to be some convergence between uh, b- between these two. So you get, you'll see more unicorns because by definition, you'll bet that this company will actually achieve this 100 million ARR and, and much more. But not all of them will do it, right? And that's uh, that's the startup kind of uh, world, right? So it will have all of the right checkboxes. I think the mechanics to get to $100 million ARR requires product market fit, right? And it requires product market fit in various stages, not just with early adapters. Probably you get on the 10 to 20, 30 million dollars run rate. You will need it with later stage companies, which means that you will need to change as an organization across the board. You mentioned just now a couple indicators of whether a company is likely to make it to $100 million near, for example, product market fit. I'm wondering, if, is there a slightly longer set of primary predictors that you think about when trying to forecast whether a company will make it to that stage? Elon, my co-founder and I, we started Trip Actions as after learning some lessons uh, from our previous uh, startup. Our previous startup was very, it was a small startup, got acquired really, really fast after nine months by Jive. And obviously, if you're getting a crowd fast, it means that you didn't think that you're going to achieve, uh, you know, product market fit and definitely not product market fit at scale. So Trip Actions was actually a lot of lessons from that. And the first and I think the most important lesson, it has to be in a really, really, really big market. If you are not in a really big market, you can push it. And maybe the more you discover the market, maybe something will happen. Maybe the entire reality of the world will move towards your observation. I think it usually does not happen. So if you are just uh, going on a really big market, that's a really, really good start. This is a really interesting point. I, I've also noticed with many of the companies that I work with that market size is a primary predictor. I think what's often difficult about market is that at a high level, it can seem pretty simple to size it. But often when you get into the details, it can be really challenging. And it can be even more challenging to forecast how fast your market is growing, which is particularly relevant for a lot of companies that I work with that are trying to create new categories that haven't really existed before. So they're trying to figure out, you know, how fast will that ready set of clients who are kind of bought into our new philosophy grow? Do you have any tips for how founders and their teams can properly size markets and and also properly forecast how fast they're going to grow? Yeah, I will kind of have a distinction between the disruption and I'm inventing a new category, right? And when you're disrupting, you are coming to a well-defined market, which in a lot of ways makes it easy and hard. So easy way easier to quantify, way easier to understand the growth of the market, way easier to understand who is the buyer. Something that is super, super important. Is there a budget? Is there initiative? 
All of these things are well uh, defined. What are the cycles? For example, in our market, our main challenge is that the cycle of a company that is already having a T&E vendor, usually that there is an RFP, RFP cycle of three years. But the growth rate that we are having, just to give you an idea, we are going to, this year, we're going to grow 350%. Part of this is COVID-related, but I'm talking about hundreds of millions, okay? So, so really big numbers. But even after we'll reach that growth rate this year, and it's pretty big numbers, our plan for next year is to grow at a 100% year over year rate, right? And it's kind of continue. Our plan continues like this for quite some time. So even though we are disrupting a market and the market is well-defined and its growth rate is well-defined, obviously we want to get more share and faster, but you have to beat the cycles, right? Because if every three, if it's every three years, we will not grow at, you know, at 100% year over year growth rate. So I think that that kind of cycle on a disruption is really important, understanding the dynamics, understanding who is buying, how do you sell, and so on. On a new category, I think that you just need to find a way to kind of get yourself into the market. So I think if it's PLG, probably easier because you don't need the corporate to necessarily adjust to you. If it's not PLG, I think it's hard. I'm not sure. Maybe I may, you'll tell me, but I'm actually not sure that I'm familiar with a company, B2B company that managed to be successful for a very long time, means that continuing to grow on a new market without having some kind of buttons up or PLG or something like that, because it's, you will need the company, the corporate, the later stages, kind of main street corporates to adjust to something that is completely new and it's kind of hard. Really interesting. I, I got to imagine it's probably also just easier to forecast how fast your market is growing. If you're seeing, if you do have a PLG motion and you're able to have a lot of data earlier in the funnel or at least earlier in the buying journey than you might in a top-down context. 100%, yeah. Yeah, really interesting. You know, speaking of the impact of COVID, because I know you referred to that, there are a number of businesses out there that at the start of the pandemic might have tanked because everything kind of shut down. But then cloud penetration dramatically increased because everyone was working remotely. So there's a huge uptick in revenue because of that. And now things are normalizing a little bit. And so, you know, you might experience flatter growth when they're kind of major market disruptions like this that are macroeconomically driven or somehow they're just external shocks. It can be really hard to figure out how fast your market is growing or what's going to happen in the market. How, how did you all handle that during the past couple of years? Yeah, so for us, it was uh, obviously an extreme case. Our business model, we are a uh, usage-based. So we are making money when our customers are using us. So that means that actually in the March 2020, and in fact, in April 2020, our revenue dipped below zero. So not only that we lost one of our revenue overnight, we actually have some dynamics that uh, we needed to actually return some of the money. So it obviously really deep uh, thing. And I was always uh, joking that we are the first post-revenue company. You know, you're one of these pre-revenue <laughs> companies and we are the first, uh, you know, post one. But besides the jokes, you know, we did that. And then we looked at COVID. And I actually think that no matter what, you can look at everything as an opportunity, right? And I think that that uh, you talked about the cloud transformation uh, uh, in COVID. I actually don't think it was a cloud transformation. I think it was an opportunity to think about problems differently. 
And, and, uh, and we saw it in travel. Think about it. People were not traveling, but we more than doubled our install base during COVID. So how did we do that? We went to companies and we told them, but you will travel. You will do expense management. Maybe you're not doing it at all right now, or you're doing it less, mainly on the expense management side, less, uh, but you'll get back to travel. And this is the best time for you to think about it differently with us. So kind of think about differently than the, your Emax and Conquer. And also the best time to actually do, uh, make a change because it's the best time ever to do change management when nobody's using the software that you've been using before. So I think that message resonated with our uh, prospect back then and customers, but I think that's what really happened in the industry. There was this thing that people were uh, aligned to themselves to think differently on, on their entire stack, on all, I think, the entire application layer. And then, of course, it, uh, it led to other challenges such as security and so on. So you start to see the entire thing, the entire B2B SaaS uh, growing really fast. I think, in, and I think that some companies did it and some companies didn't. Uh, I think that then you cannot get confused. If the market is going really fast or slowing down extremely fast, for us, it slowed down, it, it slowed down extremely fast, right? It doesn't make us extremely bad, but it also didn't make the, these companies that grew really, really fast, extremely good because a lot of this was market dynamics. And if you're not recognizing it, you are in what you need to deal with right now, right? If you see it across of all companies, if you've recognized it, uh, I think you'll do acquisitions. You'll uh, you'll uh, start new businesses. You'll do stuff that you'll that will assure your future growth. I know that this entire podcast is how do you maintain growth? How do you do? How do you uh, keep these growth as sustainable as possible? But if you are not having this kind of thinking and you're just excited that you had a great quarter and your share price is going up and so on, it will end eventually. It will end. Things are not growing forever. And definitely in extreme cases like COVID. So I think that's the kind of the thinking that is super important. And I know that we had this uh, thinking during COVID. It's super smart. It sounds like you all saw the signals in your market that indicated there were new opportunities and you were very quick to capitalize on them. And I, I agree with you that I think a lot of companies are very happily riding a wave, but maybe not always thinking about, will that wave end or can we depend on it entirely for our revenue growth in the future? A lot of companies, when they're, Let's say they're in the tens of millions of ARR. They're trying to think about how do we continue to grow fast? They're sometimes thinking about different levers like launching new products, entering new geographies, entering customer segments, acquiring other product lines, as you said. How do you choose between those different options? Have you seen any good frameworks for thinking about the trade-offs? Yeah, I can share our experience. We had a COVID and obviously we lost product market fit overnight, right? Nobody was using us like this, but we continued that business and continued to grow it in terms of signing new accounts with the hope that they will book stuff later. But then we said, okay, this market is now questionable. So let's get into a new kind of adjacent market. And that was expense management and corporate payments. And that was a tripaction's expenses and payments or liquid. And that was an obvious thing that we can have another opportunity that is relevant to the same buyer, which is really important, relevant to the same buyer, 
And therefore, we can utilize the same cells in the same go-to-market and point them towards that, right? We can maybe use our current installed base and do expansion play, which is that's what we've been doing, selling to our current uh, customers and you. But So that's one thing that we did, basically creating another product that is adjacent but extremely relevant to the same buyer. And then we've done acquisitions during COVID, and it was the same thing. Buying stuff, we bought uh, basically a travel agency that is specializing in the C-level, in VIP. What kind of offering do you want to offer on travel for the execs, the executive assistants in the company? And you want something that is more kind of a white gloves kind of a service and tailored for them. So again, it was kind of relevant for the same customer, right? I think in, I've done a lot of acquisitions in my career. I was involved in a lot of acquisitions. I got acquired several times. I think that where the story is kind of off from what you are doing, this is where things are going wrong, right? When you're basically, you have this buyer, but then you're saying, you know what? I don't really like this buyer, so I'm going to buy something else. And maybe now something will happen. And I think it actually confuses a lot of things. So I think clarity around go-to-market is a good thing probably on every stage of the company where when you're really struggling with your first sales and then when you're going towards the 10 million they allow and the 100 and to the 1 billion, this clarity, if you're losing it, you're going to miss your numbers. I'd love to dive in deeper into how you think about acquisitions and then also how you think about expanding into new geographies as well, which is a sort of net new topic. On the acquisition side, how do you decide whether to build something internally versus go out and acquire it? I think, first of all, you really need to want it, right? So it could be a feature or a service or an entire a product line or service that you need to understand that that will have a major addition to your business, something significant, something that changes your business. And I think at that point, you need to ask yourself, is it relevant, right? Is it relevant to, to, to my audience? And can I really build it? Okay. I think that the build or buy question is not a question of price. Some, sometimes, uh, you know, people are kind of getting obsessed about, will, will it be cheaper for me to build it? That's not the issue. The issue is the integration. When you are acquiring a company, they will for sure come with a different culture. And I think that you can integrate a lot of things. The one thing that actually you cannot integrate or it's extremely hard is culture. Cultures are very much, it's this sticky thing that it's also very much not defined. That's why in a lot of acquisitions, it's them and us after the acquisition, right? And they are living and so on. So... Because you'll have this issue, you really need to convince yourself that you cannot build it by yourself. Now, if you cannot build it by yourself, and it's really important from a business perspective, you really need this thing. I think now you are, you are ready to pay the price of integration, of cultural differences. The cost itself, assuming that you are uh, good on business modeling and negotiation, the cost will make sense because you've just defined it to yourself that you really need it. And that's how much money you're going to make out of it. And that's how much it will cost you to buy it. So the cost will make sense. But the real cost is all of the issues that it's actually, it was not organic. It's coming from somebody else. You will need to integrate the entire thing. And that's going to be the real cost. So I think the biggest question is, can you build it by yourself or not? When we've acquired, it was after we actually were not successful on building this thing by ourselves. So what acquisition was VIP? 
which is very, very VIP agency, which is very different than what we've been doing historically. Tried to build it twice, failed, decided that we'll not try to build it for the third time. And the other thing was to to strengthen uh, our, our capabilities in Europe. So we were in Europe, but not in the same way that we wanted to be in Europe. And by doing a major acquisition in Europe, we've landed in Europe in an extremely uh, strong way. So again, it was something that for us, we didn't figure out how to do it by ourselves. And we found the shortcut and the shortcut was through an acquisition. Interesting. That actually segues well into my next question, which is going to be about how to think about entering new geographies. How do you know when you're ready to expand, say, into Europe if you're currently based in North America? You kind of never ready for that. And generally, first of all, for us, sometimes not having a choice is actually a really good thing. When you run a travel company, you cannot actually run a travel company in the US. So you need to be very global. We went globally, and I mean Europe, and not just like some office in London, London, Amsterdam, Lisbon, very, very early to Europe and in parallel to Sydney and to Singapore. And also have a really, really strong deep partnership in uh, China. And the reason is that as you start to grow and go to mid-sized companies, they will have offices everywhere and you need to support them at that location. So that's our business. So we didn't have a choice. And from operational perspective, we went very, very early in our third year. Like we did a B round and then we became global. Very similar, you see it in other businesses. Take Uber as an example. You know, they went global very, very, very early. And by the way, we kind of use the same method, like sending somebody to that geo and basically tell that person, don't come back and don't call us until you can tell us that we are in Australia, right? So we kind of use the same method. I think in normal businesses where you don't have that push, it's more of a question of is that time to expand the market to the other uh, to the other place? And I assume that people have the aspiration to, build a really big company. Some people doesn't have this aspiration, but if you have this aspiration, you want to be global. And I think the time is where you feel that you kind of mastered that thing in the US, assuming that most of the companies that we are talking about were established here. And then you'll say, okay, that's the time to probably try it out in Europe, kind of test the water a little bit, see how much we are far from product market fit and you are. You think that you are in product market fit here, but you are no longer. You cannot assume that you are product in product market fit over there. So kind of test it and almost scaling the company up in almost the same kind of way that you did it in, uh, you know, in the US, just with more resources, right? Because obviously at that stage, you'll have more money. You'll be able to hire kind of uh, different kind of people and so on. The last thing that I would recommend, also send some of your employees from the U.S. to Europe because you do want this culture to assimilate a little bit uh, over there. Switching gears, I'd love to talk with you about how you need to operate differently when you're at scale. So specifically, when you're approaching 100 million ARR and you're trying to sustain very high growth rates, how does your exec team change? How does your board change? And how do you relate to them differently? In a minute, I'll say the obvious things that I bet that others were saying as well. I will get to this in a, in a minute. And the obvious things are, you know, like they hire the right exe- execs and make sure that your processes are scalable. And I'll talk about that in a second. I actually think that the most important thing is actually not to change. What worked for you in the speed and the A and the B and the kind of C stages, which means different levels of run rates or ARR, 
is that thing that worked for you. There is some reason that your customers were happy at these stages and you should not lose it. It could be your approach to sales. It could be the approach to customer success. It could be how you're doing support. It could be the way that you are pricing stuff. But these things actually worked for you. So I'm not saying don't grow up, but I'm saying don't ditch these things. I'll say another thing. Also, these employees worked for you. So it's very temptating to come and say, okay, so now we are scaling from 10 to 100 million. So let's bring the CMO, the CRO, the whatever C that is relevant for that stage. And it's kind of the advice that you're going to get from your board, from your advisors, from your peers, from everybody. First of all, I've done all of this in a, I replaced CRO three times. I replaced two CMOs. You know, I've done all of this. And I think some of this was a mistake and some of this is you need to find a balance. And if you look at my staff today, you'll see a good mix of people that came over the years as we scaled and people that were here seven years ago when we started. So, for example, the person that uh, runs uh, Liquid, our, our expense management and payments for us, Michael, he was number 10 employee, right? So he was our first sales guy. Now he's, he's running an entire business. Nina, who is running our entire travel uh, business, she is the GM for travel. She started five years ago, came from Uber, and she was actually this person that when I said earlier, you send her to somewhere and tell her not to come back until there is a thing there. That was Nina. So, and you'll go on my stuff and you'll see this mix of newcomers, kind of the skilled people, and also people that were here for quite some time. And as I was mentioning earlier, sometimes this thing that you have to now hire the Salesforce guy, you know, didn't work for us, didn't really work for us. So I think you need to be very careful and find the, find the, 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 the mix. Still, the goals are different, right? So you need to, to ask yourself the question, are these people that are growing with you and bringing the culture and all of this recipe of how to be successful, uh, can they scale? Uh, can they hire people? Can they grow? Have they maxed out? If they maxed out, you need to do the normal things that everybody knows that you need to do. You need to hire and, uh, and, and the right execs and so on. I will say something there. And by the way, it's not that I knew it five, six, seven years ago. I learned it, right? And I'm still making these mistakes, like probably everybody still listening to, the, to this post podcast. Let's say that you are hiring from these very successful companies. I've mentioned Salesforce as an example. So you are hiring from Salesforce or from Amazon or from whatever. These companies have really, really strong, strong culture and a well-defined way of operation, you know, Salesforce with the V2 mail, with the Amazon with writing the memo and whatever. They will try to bring it to your organization and it will not work because this is a different organization. So either don't hire them or if you hire them, make sure to set up these expectations. And I think that that's kind of the temptation of now we are going to the 100 million or in our case, it's the 1 billion, right? So it's even a, a bigger number. It still doesn't mean that you need a V2 memo or a memo before the meeting. So you really, really need to, maybe you need the experience, but you also need to make sure that you are keeping your own thing. Great advice. And I think a lot of that is provocative and sometimes contrarian, as you mentioned. So it's really good to reinforce that and hear that. How does your board need to change as you get to be a larger scale? I was kind of lucky. We have a board that has really good uh, investors. 
in more than these really good partners, right? So, you know, you can have a really good VC, but it still doesn't mean that you, you know, you have the right partner. So because that's the case, and that's kind of how this board kind of evolved. When I'm looking around the room, I'm very happy with the board that I have. I have kind of added more independent board members recently, but the reality is that, uh, you know, we had a nice board that brought different type of, uh, of type of experience. I, I have uh, one side of my board, extremely, you know, financial experience in the weeds of what is gross margins and how can you scale it up and so on. Very, very, very important. And on the other side, I have uh, someone like Ben, Ben Ovitz, who is a very strong operator that gives you, can give you a lot of context around operations, right? And, uh, and uh, being a CEO kind of in a crisis like what we had in uh, COVID, right? And actually in more of a normal times. So I think that, I don't think the stage is important. I think the quality of the people in the board, that's the important thing. And then their experience. You want to have this operator. You want to have this person that understands the financials really deeply. You do want to, on the later stages, you do want to to have people that understand what does it mean to be a public company and so on. So I think that's how you kind of think about it. But I think in most of the cases before you're thinking of going public, I wouldn't obsess on it. I think that the board composition is the board composition and try to just partner as you're bringing people to this journey, investors, try to partner with the right ones. I, I think that's actually really, really important. Most of your board members in the early stages, pre-IPO will be your investors anyway. So just make sure that you have the right investors. Ariel, in closing, I just have one final question for you, which is if you have one tip to give to B2B SaaS founders that are a stage or two earlier than you in terms of how they can sustain really high growth rates going forward, what would it be? I think obsessing on product market fit and don't assume that it stays because as you grow, you are by definition no longer in product market fit because you are going to different markets, different segments, different verticals. So they need something else. So something slightly different, but that means everything. If you will obsess on product market fit and you will always make sure that you're in product market fit, I think that you will go for a very, very long time. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us today. This is great. Thank you. 